From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Some children during infancy or early childhood refuse to eat certain types of foods, and if this goes on long enough to affect their weight gain or impact their growth and development, it might be time to see someone who specializes in feeding therapy. Heather Cady is a behavior analyst who directs the feeding program in Upstate's Department of Pediatrics, and she's here to talk about this service. Thank you for being here, Heather. Thank you so much for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about the types of services that are offered through the feeding program? Yes, absolutely. We provide intensive feeding service, um, so as you said, for children who are not eating either enough variety of foods or enough quantities of food to maintain nutritional status and growth. Um, Our program provides a fairly intensive level of service, so kids attend appointments Monday through Friday for about one hour. We have seen kids for up to five or six hours a day, um, dependent on severity of the feeding problem. Generally, those kids have um, a feeding tube such that they're eating very little by mouth or not at all. And each child that comes to the clinic is staffed two to one, so there's two therapists assigned to each child. And one therapist is presenting food or drinks or whatever we're working on in therapy. And the second person sits in the room to collect data on the child's responding. Now, what age um, kids are we talking about? What age? You know, I have seen children from newborns all the way up to 14 years old. Um, You know, and kind of on either end of the spectrum is somewhat uncommon, but generally most kids who come into the clinic are probably ages four to eight. Okay. And what, what's sort of the underlying disorder or the underlying cause of the feeding? Like what types of um, underlying causes are there? Sure. So I, I would put them into two general categories. Um, Many of the children we see have had um, complicated medical histories where they have experienced something many times at birth that have restricted them from eating. Um, Many of them have experienced something where they have um, experienced pain associated with eating. So something as simple as reflux as a baby causing the child to have discomfort related to eating. I've seen children who have had severe allergic reactions to certain foods. I've seen children who have had a choking episode. So again, something that happened when the child was young for them to associate discomfort with eating. Um, And then the other category I would say, um, we see a number of children with autism. And um, as most people know, Children with autism demonstrate a very strong preference for routine and are very resistant to change. And this often may carry over to eating. So we see a number of kids where they only eat maybe one or two foods throughout the day, or they may eat very specific things for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. In addition to that, these children often also um, have very rigid um, eating routines such that foods have to be presented in a certain way. Just to give you an example, I have a little girl, and when she first started with us, she only ate one kind of baby food. She was four years old, so it was not an age-appropriate texture, limited variety, and um, she would only eat when she was sitting at her counter at her island on a stool, and the baby food container had to be tipped upside down just so that the food would fall down onto the plate (laughs) in a certain way. 
If it wasn't, she would simply refuse to eat. Um, those parents also reported that if they went on vacation or to a friend's house, that she would simply refuse to eat. They would refer to them as hunger strikes, and they'd often have to come home from vacation because she wouldn't be eating. Um, that's obviously fairly severe. Um, we see a number of older children, four or five years old, still drinking out of a bottle. Again, this is how I eat, this is my routine, and I'm not changing it. Well, how do how do parents know whether they have like a picky eater or, or like it's a phase and it's or a picky eater um, or a child that's got a feeding disorder that you could help with? How do you tell the difference? That's a really, really good question because I think that's one thing that parents really struggle with because, you know, everybody has an opinion about eating and everybody has an opinion about how children should be fed. And people are often very quick to say, well, that's just a picky eater. You need to do this or you just need to make them sit there till they eat their dinner. And, um, Generally, these children are suffering from nutritional deficits or not getting enough calories. Um, these families can't travel to places because of their child's restrictive um, feeding problems. They don't participate in um, holiday meals. I had another little boy, a um, little boy with autism, and you know, it's Halloween was very difficult for him for multiple reasons. One, because he's having to walk up to strangers' houses and speak to them. Mm -hmm. And secondly, he had a feeding problem. And so his mother told me the first time she took him trick-or-treating, you know, he went to a neighbor's house, a familiar person, and he got up to the door, he said trick-or-treat, and the man placed a piece of candy in his bag, and he took the candy out of the bag, and he threw it at the man and ran away. And so... Again, these kids aren't eating candy. They aren't eating cake on their birthday. They aren't eating ice cream. They aren't eating cotton candy. And normally for a child who's just a picky eater, they eat kind of what they want, but they also eat these other things versus children who are really suffering from this feeding disorder. Um, they are very, very selective, and it's affecting them nutritionally and, and calorically as well. So really, if I hear you correctly, if it's impacting your life, I mean, th those are huge, huge um, impacts. Exactly. If you're not able to travel, you can't eat it out at a restaurant, you can't go to a neighbor's house for dinner, um, then maybe it is time to ask. I, I guess are people referred in through a pediatrician usually? Um, so how we get our referrals, um, all of our referrals actually go through um, PEDS GI, Pediatric gastrointestinal? Mm -hmm. okay. That's right. Okay. Um, so we do get some referrals from local pediatricians, um, and then we always send them to um, get a medical clearance um, for feeding from Peds GI. And so they will see the children and then make a referral to us. Because um, obviously for some kids, the eating issues may be related to a medical issue. And so that needs to be resolved before any child would come to see us. Because sure. obviously if a, a child is experiencing pain associated with eating, we certainly don't want to work intensively to get them to eat foods if there's still something ongoing. So any child that comes to see us um, is medically cleared, they're able to eat, and they don't have ongoing medical issues. Okay. Uh, this is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Director of the Feeding Program in the Department of Pediatrics at Upstate, Heather Cady. Um, tell us what is ARFID, or Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder. Yeah, it doesn't really roll off the tongue, does it? No, it does doesn't. It? <laughs> ARFID? Right. So this is the current... Um, diagnostic category in the DSM-5. So it's actually um, 
revised. Um, it used to be um, feeding disorders of early childhood and infancy. Um, and they have revised it and include a wider range of ages. So previously, a child would have been categorized as this if they were experiencing these issues at six or younger. But um, often you may see older kids with this issue as well. Just to give you an example, um, I saw a boy who was older, 14 years old, diagnosis of autism, and he had a, he was a typical eater throughout his life. He had a choking episode at the age of 14 on some fast food and completely stopped eating and um, ended up in the hospital because um, he wasn't eating. And so although he was older, it didn't fit into the category of something like anorexia or bulimia. It wasn't related to something like self-image. Um, a distorted self-image as it is with those other diagnoses. Um, so that would be an example. So they wanted to be able to encompass this kind of wider range of problems that, you know, may have even occurred at a younger age, but just has persisted because the child hadn't received appropriate treatment. Interesting. So I, I also want to talk about the types of therapy that's offered and how feeding therapy, I, I, is there crossover with speech language pathology and occupational therapy or, or do you work together or? Um, generally the role that speech OT, OT would play for us is ensuring that the child is a safe oral feeder. So they would ensure that the child demonstrates the oromotor skills to be able to effectively consume food, chew and swallow, that the child um, isn't experiencing, isn't at risk for aspiration. Um, but, and I do know that sometimes occupational and speech therapy do provide some types of feeding service, but it is somewhat different than what we do. I would say the primary difference would be the level of data analysis, um, data collection analysis that we provide for each child. So as I mentioned earlier, there's a therapist presenting food or drink to the child. There's also a second person in the room collecting data on the child's responding. So every time the child is presented with a bite or drink of food, someone's collecting data on what's happening. Is the child crying? Does the child push the cup away or the food away? Does the child touch, put the food in their mouth. If they do put the food in their mouth, do they expel it? Do they hold it in their mouth? Do they chew it? What do they do with the food? If you think about it, eating actually involves a very complex series of behaviors in a chain, and those all have to occur for accept effective consumption of the food. And so there's a number of places at which things can fall apart. You know, as early on as a child may not be sitting in a chair at the table, they may be running around the room, or they may be crying, or even if the child, like I said, is accepting the food, they may spit the food out. And so the data collection allows us to very carefully pinpoint each one of those problematic behaviors for each individual child. And generally, you have to treat the first chain and the behavior before you can treat the next one. So sometimes what we have to do in the beginning to get a child sitting quietly in the chair is different from what we need to do to get them to chew and swallow a bite of food. And so the data collection and analysis allows us for each child to very carefully track those behaviors and the child's progress. So what we're doing involves learning and that takes time. And we're also able to track the child's progress over the course of a day, over the course of multiple days and weeks. 
Then just to give you an example, if we're working with a child, we're presenting bites of food to the child, and we're collecting data on crying. And you may come by and you see, you know, come by for three or four days in a row, and you come by and you peek in on the child and you see them crying, and you think, wow, that just isn't working. Every time I go in there, that child is just crying and they seem upset. But then if I showed you a graph where on the first day you came, the child was crying for 80% of the session, the second day was 50%, the third day it was 30%, and then the last day it was 10%, that tells a completely different story. And so it, again, allows us to very carefully track those um, behaviors and be able to tell whether or not what we're doing is working. Is it getting better? Is it staying the same? Is it getting worse? And the data really hold us accountable to whether or not we're being effective in what we're doing. How long do some of the um, therapies last? I mean, I know that the kids are there maybe for an hour at a time, but for how many weeks? And that's a difficult question to answer because it really depends on where the child is when they come in. So I gave you the example of the child who was eating one type of baby food at four years old. In that case, you need to work on texture variety. Um, and initially, for a child who's eating baby food, you can't go right to table texture food. So initially, the increase is pureed foods. And then from there, you need to go to table texture food. But then from table texture food, you need to work on volume of those foods. And so for a child like that, it's going to take much longer, maybe a year's time to get them close to age typical eating. For a child who comes in and is eating table texture food but isn't eating enough quantities of those food and just needs some restructuring of the meal, you know, maybe that takes, you know, three to six months to get them where they need to be. So it all depends on, on where they are when they Very come in. Very individualized. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, and then again, you have some children who have feeding tubes and that may be a much longer, more intensive process as well. Sure. Well, before I let you go, we're about to run out of time, but any advice for how parents can get their kids to eat their vegetables? <laughs> you know, it's, it's again, because it's so individualized, um, giving advice is a really hard thing to do. But I, what I would like to speak very briefly about is I always feel compelled to speak on behalf of parents. And, you know, parents often come to me very defeated. Um, you know, as a parent, one of your first tasks when your child is born is to feed them, right? You need to keep them alive and you need to keep them healthy. And so for a parent not to be able to do that is um, is extremely difficult and frustrating for them. And then that in combination with all of the advice giving from people, um, parents really come in feeling like it's their fault. They've done something wrong, they're a bad parent. And these issues are not the result of bad parenting. These are very real, very severe feeding issues that often require intensive therapy. And so I think my recommendation would be if you are a parent or you know a parent, um, that you recommend that they maybe seek out some information about this and get an assessment to see if their child does require some intervention for the feeding issues. Well, very good to know. Thank you so much. My guest has been Heather Cady. She's the director of the feeding program in the Department of Pediatrics at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.